this week on the Backtable Podcast. And then what they did was say, well, why don't we use that same skill set to manage pain? And that opened up the door to the following thinking, which is there are pain generators in the body that can't be reached unless they're reached surgically, which comes with okay. mortality, complication, cost, and so on, to the point where those surgeries aren't even done. And so the pain generators are just left. We can reach those with our advanced imaging guidance and with our interventional radiology skill set, and we can do things. We can inject, we can ablate, we can freeze, uh, we can modify these pain generators. And that has created a brand new, that in combination with the uh, evolution of technology has created a brand new specialty in and of itself. Hello everyone and welcome to the Backtable MSK podcast, your source for all things musculoskeletal. You can find all previous episodes of our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on Backtable.com. First, a brief word from our sponsors. RadPad was developed by physicians for physicians. Clinically proven radiation protection during Cine and digital subtraction angiography. Don't bet your career or your health on anything less. Trust RadPad radiation protection shields for all your fluoro-guided interventions. See radpad.com for more information and contact info at radpad.com for a free radiation evaluation and a no-brainer radiation protection cap. And don't forget to tell them that you heard about it on the Backtable podcast. Now, back to the show. This is Michael Barraza returning as your host, recording in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm honored to welcome back Dr. David Prologo from Emory University, who joined us on the podcast back in 2017. It's actually one of our first ones, I think it was number seven, uh, to discuss novel bariatric and pain therapies. Dr. Prologo, thanks for sharing your time and expertise with us today. Oh my gosh, thank you for having me. And, and thank you for the amazing evolution in, in technology and content over the last five years. You guys are stupendous. Thank you. Thank you. We, we're staying busy and, you know, trying to, to keep making this a good resource. So today we're going to be focusing primarily on minimally invasive pain interventions. And uh, we're going to talk about some of Dr. Prologo's leadership activities. We'll talk about the role of IR in the multidisciplinary management of pain. We'll learn about what pain interventions look like in Dr. Prologo's practice, and then we'll review some of the various interventions that fall under pain management. I want to encourage our listeners to check out the December 2020 issue of Techniques in Vascular and Interventional Radiology, which was led and edited by Dr. Prologo, focusing on advanced interventional pain management. It's something that was very useful to me as I started to expand that part of my practice. Uh, I refer to those articles all the time. But David, before we dive into pain interventions, I want to take a minute to talk about another focus of your practice. Could you tell us a bit about how and why you became trained and certified in obesity medicine and how this fits into your practice as an interventional radiologist? Sure, sure. Absolutely. That's, uh, that's a little bit of an interesting story. So f for a long time during my career, starting even in medical school, I had a particular interest in uh, weight loss, and even more specifically, the attrition that goes along with all these attempts to lose weight. And so I had always in parallel been pursuing that and uh, found out that it was something as an interventional radiologist that I could become certified in. We all couldn't become certified in through a, a standard training exercise and then a certification exam. So I had had that interest personally for a very long time. And then at the same time, my interventional radiology career became almost exclusively about pain, as you know. And uh, as part of that, we were doing a lot of interventional cryoneurolysis procedures, uh, both for the management of cancer-related pain and, and non-neoplastic pain, uh, as you know. So uh, a very interesting intersection occurred when it became clear to me that surgically, uh, the vagus nerve was being transected during uh, things like uh, duodenal resections, ruin wise, to manage ulcers historically. And so, what they realized during that time, and what has been published and supported for some time now in animals and humans, is that interruption of that uh, nerve pathway resulted in decreased appetite and resulted in attenuated hunger. There's this quote that I that I love from one of the papers that says interruption of that vagus nerve results in uh, decreased appetite and interruption of weight gain in all species studied. So, wow, just kind of 
you know, came together when we said, well, we're, we're putting these cryoablation probes and we're trying to freeze these nerves and understand that mechanism. What if we did that and, and blocked the hunger signal from an empty stomach percutaneously? Would that help people to diet? And uh, so that's what we did. And, and that's how it all ultimately came together. Uh, the percutaneous crown neurolysis stuff and the obesity medicine stuff. And uh, there's offshoots now from that and metabolic conditions, diabetes, hypertension. We should talk about all that stuff if we have time. <laughs> I'd love to. I'd love to hear about, you know, some of your more recent developments and, uh, you know, some of the, the data that you've accumulated. I'd love to hear about it. Well, I'll start here. Uh, certainly what I think is is interesting for this audience, and I like to to talk about this when I can, because it not only is an interesting application in and of itself, but it really illustrates what uh, interventional radiologists can do with their skill set beyond what we're already doing, if we can get beyond the logistics of, of already having full days. If we think about the uh, management of hypertension by endovascular ablation of nerves, renal artery nerves, for example, we are wondering if there's some way that we can attenuate that signal uh, with an endovascular catheter across the wall uh, and thereby help patients with refractory hypertension or hypertension in general. But without getting too far into the weeds, uh, the point is that there's a lot of these things like the posterior vagotomy that are supported in the surgical literature. We don't have to reinvent the wheel okay. and go back to the animals and say, if we interrupt this vagus nerve, will it interrupt weight gain? Will it attenuate hunger? We already know that. So all we have to do is superimpose our existing skill set onto that and make it a percutaneous procedure, right? So I would say the same thing is probably true for the management of hypertension by ablating these nerves. It's already been shown in animals. It's already been surgically supported by splanchnicectomies, by nephrectomies. And now we're trying to endovascularly, and I would suggest potentially percutaneously, target those nerves uh, where they come together at the aortico renal ganglion. Uh, and then uh, maybe accomplish all of this again with just a CT-guided percutaneous procedure. So there's a lot of things we can do like that, I think, that all the the basic clinical work and the human support work through surgery is already there for us. We just need to take it across the finish line. Man, that is awesome. It's really exciting, the stuff that you're developing. You know, it, it's funny, We, you know, I was telling you earlier, we, we've got some different podcasts now, and, and, and one of them is a medical innovation podcast. It's kind of hard to choose which one to put you on. Uh, you know, because, but with that in mind, I mean, you've, you've got a new book I'd like to hear about, and uh, it's called The Catching Point Transformation. First of all, what's the catching point and, and how do we get there? Oh, what, thank you for asking about that. So that's a, that's a totally different project indeed, uh, trying to translate some of these thoughts for the general, pu general public. So The Catching Point is this point beyond which the struggle for weight loss is gone. And it's, an, it's a super important thing, at least for, for all the work that, that I've been doing, because, again, one of these things that's already known is that the current gold standard for weight loss, diet and exercise programs, right? It, do, it really doesn't work very well. And, and so the attrition rate is really high and the failure rate is really high. And the uh, explosion of the prevalence of obesity is obvious. And so it really doesn't work. And if we ask ourselves why it doesn't work, there's sort of this outside of medicine, and it even crosses into medicine, unfortunately, sentiment that it doesn't work because somehow it's the patient's fault, right? And uh, we could talk a little bit more about that sentiment because I think it's important, but to answer the question, what is the catching point? What is really happening during these failures are that things like hunger hormones are spiking, people's metabolisms are slowing, right? All these survival-based signals are jumping up and, and fighting this person all the way uh, until they quit, right? Until the great majority of them quit during this diet and exercise attempt. What the catching point, though, is it represents this point beyond which we don't have a spike in hunger hormones anymore. We don't have a compensatory slow in our basal metabolic rate to offset what the body thinks is starvation. And then it's a little bit easier. It's a lot easier, actually. If you think about many of these people who are lean and who work out and run, they're not having a hard time at all, right? They're not struggling. They're not fighting hunger hormone spikes. They're not fighting compensatory metabolism changes or adiposopathy or any of those things. They're loving their life. They'll tell you they can't live without it, right? So there's a clear separation between people who are engaged in maintenance activities, the same activities, eating kale and working out, whatever it might be. Uh, on one side of the catching point where it's enjoyable and stress-free and even addictive, 
And then there's a whole population of people on the other side of that catching point for whom the exact same activities, eating kale and working out, are, are miserable and almost uh, undoable. So then the question becomes, how do we get people from where they are now through that catching point to the other side where it's easy? And that's really where the vagotomy came in. Can we stop hunger for a while, get people across that catching point, and make it easier for them, and then they're off on their way. And so many of them did exactly that. And and right so I'm on. sorry that was a long answer, but that's no, what the catching point uh, is, and that's uh, that's what the book is about. I mean, look, it, there's there's a lot to say. You made a whole book out of it. So I mean, lots of people have great ideas. What was a, tell me about the process of of taking this this program and making it into a book? So the the well, it's it's funny. So for this audience, I'm I'm gonna just give the straight scoop, right? Yes. Uh, the the program really was integrated into the book because of sort of real world issues, right? What I wanted to write about was this idea, this sentiment that people are faced with biological challenges, and when they can't overcome these biological challenges on their own, this pathology, they can't overcome this pathology on their own. We somehow turn it back on them and make it their fault and fat shame and say that they must not really want it. And somehow we just turn it back on the patient. And that, that phenomenon has really been my passion for a long time. And that's what I wanted to write about because we don't do that in any other setting, right? We don't have anyone come to us with uh, cardiac disease, even if they got it smoking and drinking uh, and eating steaks, even if that were the case, we still don't tell them you know, just sort of figure it out on your own. And if you can't, you must not really want it. And we don't do that with cancer. If someone comes back to us with a, uh, I can't tolerate my uh, anti-neoplastic drug because it makes me nauseated. We don't roll our eyes at that person and say that you must not really want to be rid of your cancer. We never do that. We say, <laughs> okay, let us figure out how we can make the treatment more tenable for you or switch your treatment. But when it comes to weight loss and a condition of obesity, when people come to us and say, I've tried this diet and exercise program and I can't do it, we just look down our noses at them and say, you know, you must not really want it. So that's what I wanted to write about. And yeah. uh, it turns out that there's a whole process here of how to get a book published. And it has a lot to do with what the publisher thinks they can sell. And sure. that sometimes there's a little bit of a disconnect between what you want to write and what they think that they can sell. So I had to incorporate a program into the Catching Point Transformation book for our purposes of being able to sell it. But what I think is important that is contained in that book is really not the program. It's really the defining of what's been stopping people so far and then the ways that we can get around that, like the vagotomy, like fluidity, all these things that are evidence-supported. Uh, but I had to put a prescriptive trap chapter in there in order to get it published. David, uh, is the book available yet? And where can we find it? It is, and thank you again for asking that question. Uh, January 25th <laughs> was the day that it became available. It's available on Audible. So people listening to this podcast, no if you're a listener instead of a reader, it's on Audible. Um, and then it's available all the sort of typical places you might think, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, Books A Million, really just uh, Google Play. It's, it's everywhere. It's distributed by Simon & Schuster. So it's easy enough to wow. acquire should someone have the interest. Congrats, man. That is awesome. Very exciting. Thank you. Thanks for saying that. It's, but I will tell you though, Michael, how, it being available is, is uh, one step short of it being sold. And so I appreciate you having <laughs> me on here uh, so that I can talk about that and, and try, to, yeah, uh, try to get copies into people's hands. Hey, that's part of it. So the other thing we're talking about is pain interventions, um, mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. are a vital and growing component of interventional radiology practice. And, and you become one of the principal authorities in the IR community on pain intervention. And so for our listeners, you know, Dr. Prologo is the current chair of the SIR Pain Management Clinical Specialty Council. Can you tell us about your experience with the council, including, you know, the objectives and, and what you hope to accomplish with it? Sure, absolutely. And uh, another great question. So in large, uh, largely due to Parag Patel and others, the governance structure of the SIR has been restructured in recent years. And it is restructured in such a way now that there's crosstalk between uh, what we used to call service lines, and in uh, all the other parts of the society, such as economics council, education uh, committee, and guidelines, so on, reimbursement, the foundation, they've done a brilliant job of creating this matrix now so that the clinical specialty councils, of which one is, is pain management, 
can take advantage of the full resources of this society and accomplish the sort of action steps that we define early on, such as generating guidelines, acquiring funding for studies, uh, generating education modules so people uh, can have answers to some of the things you and I were talking about before we came on. Yeah. And so on. So the power of the clinical specialty councils now, thanks to the SIR governance restructuring, is significant. And each of the chairs of each of the specialty councils now is part of the steering committee. So we've sort of leveled every, I, not, I shouldn't say we, the SIR has, has leveled uh, the entire governance structure and now we're so much more effective and we're so much more efficient and we have access to all the resources within the society. So uh, it's an honor to be a chair of that Clinical Specialty Council. And I hope that we can use this opportunity to get all of the things to the members that they need. Okay. Good deal. Yeah. It, I mean, it is an honor, but it, you certainly earned it. And, you know, you, you've really built quite a practice in pain intervention. So my next question then is, David, why pain? So why and of course, how did this become such a large focus of your career? Well, what a great question. So early on, uh, Matt Kallstrom and uh, Damien Dupuis, and, and so I, I can't name them all. So uh, and no disrespect to anyone who I don't name in that long list sure. of people laid the foundation for us, essentially, you know, through the development of the percutaneous ablation of painful osseous metastatic disease or soft tissue neoplasms that are causing pain. Yeah. And from there, that foundation that they laid really was, uh, again, as we were talking about early on in the, in the podcast, the idea that we can take our interventional radiology skill set and do something else. That's, that's the door that they opened for us. We know okay. that we can take a thermal ablation device and treat a renal cell carcinoma as percutaneously and as an outpatient and so on. And then what they did was say, well, why don't we use that same skill set to manage pain? And that opened up the door to the following thinking, which is there are pain generators in the body that can't be reached unless they're reached surgically, which comes with okay. mortality, complication, cost, and so on, to the point where those surgeries aren't even done. And so the pain generators are just left. We can reach those with our advanced imaging guidance and with our interventional radiology skill set, and we can do things. We can inject, we can ablate, we can freeze, uh, we can modify these pain generators, and that has created a brand new, that in combination with the uh, evolution of technology has created a brand new specialty in and of itself. It's, it's a subspecialty now of interventional radiology, now that interventional radiology is officially and formally a specialty. Uh, and mm -hmm. that's why, that's why, because we can solve all of these problems because we can get there and we can do something. Right on. Well, you answered my next question. You know, my next question was, was going to bring up the fact that, you know, we are one of many players in this sphere, um, mm -hmm. you know, and we're also working with physical medicine and rehab, working with ortho, palliative care, physical therapy, uh, you know, they're often quarterbacking it. And then, you know, we aren't the only ones doing their procedures too, you know, for you know, I'm not talking about open surgery, but for minimally invasive therapies, you know, there's pain medicine, general anesthesiology, sports medicine, primary care docs, et cetera. And, you know, my question was going to be, you know, where do we fit in in this multiply disciplinary team? And basically, what advantages do we have that really warrant us becoming a key contributor? And, and it sounds like image guidance and being able to get to these places that otherwise would have been really only options for surgery or one of our main advantages. Is that correct? That's correct. And in our technology and our position in the hospital. So okay. uh, we can, first of all, make sure that we maintain relationships with all the other subspecialties in a non-threatening manner by focusing our initial steps and our initial role, our initial procedures on those things that other people aren't doing, right? Patient totally. is uh, coming in with, for example, painful osseous metastatic deposit, combination of interventional uh, radiology advanced imaging guidance, and our ablative technology, we manage that situation, right? And so when we take the low-hanging fruit there where we can help the referrers and help the patient, that's how we get our foot in the door. That's how we define ourselves and get put on the radar. And some halo business will, will follow from that. But okay. we have other advantages. Oftentimes we are stationed in the hospitals. So we've got patients who are 
coming into the hospital with intractable pain. For example, we can say uh, neoplasm-related intractable pain. Now, there's a driver for the, the doctors who are taking care of that patient on the floor for the hospital system. And even now, because of COVID, just based on capacity. So there's three drivers there, right? There's uh, the person being held accountable for their length of stay on the ground, which it might be a hospitalist, it might be internal medicine or oncology. There's the hospital system in general, which wants to shorten the length of stay, right? Which is almost always better for the patient as well. And then superimposed on that in the last three years has been COVID. Well, we need hospital beds. And so those three drivers and our presence in the hospital came together such that we can offer these patients therapies to decrease their pain today and get them out of the hospital. And that way, if we stick with the cancer example, in that way, we're not taking anyone's business. We're not eating anyone's lunch. We're just here to help the patient get under, get their pain under control and get out of the hospital. They can have their radiation therapy as an outpatient, for example. And so we have our imaging guidance, we have our, our ablative technology, but we also have our position in the hospital uh, that allows us to go through the sequence that I just described, but also build relationships with those referrers, uh, which will then bring us halo business that's pain-related and non-pain-related. Right on. That was a great answer to that question. And I think you're experiencing that, right? Michael, you're experiencing that. Totally. You're there. Absolutely. Uh, and, and, uh, and you're getting requests, uh, the, the ever so familiar request that an interventional radiologist gets. Uh, when I just wrote an editorial about this, actually, which will be a new seminars in interventional radiology uh, oh, issue good. on advanced interventional pain will be coming out. And we talk about exactly this, which is uh, oftentimes we get the question, can you help? I mean, we're, we're, what we do and how we do it sometimes is so far ahead of what the general population and the referrers are aware of, and they can't even ask for anything specific, which is fine. We want to be a consultative service anyway, right? So we get that question, uh, can you help? And so our position there uh, allows us. There's another driving force, Michael, as if that isn't enough. As you know, there's an opioid crisis now in the world. And yeah. the opioid crisis is essentially this sort of phenomenon uh, that occurred for various reasons that I won't take up time on this podcast going over. <laughs> but the point now is that the societies and the legislators have generated guidelines and laws that are driving uh, patients away from opioids. And sometimes yeah. that's just what they do, drive them away from opioids. And then you're kind of on your own after that, right? So there we are again, just like we're there for the inpatients who need to shorten their length of stay, there we are offering procedural alternatives to opioid therapy. And so you really couldn't line it up any better if your interest was uh, to take care of these patients in pain. Absolutely. David, I want to hear a little bit about your own practice. I, I know enough about it to know that it, it's pretty unique. I mean, you've got uh, you know a destination element of your practice where people come from all over to get pain treatments from you. I know that one of my own partners uh, as recently as last week recommended that somebody send a patient to you. And I get the understanding that, that this happens a lot. So before we get into kind of the details of it, I just want to ask you, like, how did you build this, this brand, this name value? And, and how did you build this element of your practice? Or, you know, I mean, you're the guy for this. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, interesting that, that you would say that because we, we really have an army of guys and girls and, 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 and people, right? We, we have an army of people across the world who can do all of the things that I can do, right? And we just want to be yeah. able to activate them when, when the need arises. So uh, it really, I guess it's sort of a vantage point question here. On the one hand, has uh, Dave Prologo been able to raise a little bit of awareness that I've got this interventional radiology skill set that I can apply to pain? I suppose that might be true. But on the other side of it, it's my greatest professional frustration, to be honest with you, Michael, <laughs> that we have all of these things that we can do for all of these patients. And once a month, I meet somebody that I could have helped 18 months ago. And yeah. so even though uh, what, what you say may be true and the way that that happened really was through exactly what I've just described to you, we would take care of these patients as inpatients, uh, we would accidentally run into them and do something. And then what happened from there is essentially a word of mouth chain. And now with the uh, internet uh, availability and people's ability to go into Facebook uh, groups and so on, the word kind of spread organically like that. But not anywhere near 
what we as a specialty slash subspecialty, if we're talking about advanced interventional pain, could be doing for the human beings in the world here. We're not even scraping the surface as far as being able to translate and disseminate the message. And so what you're doing, by the way, what you're doing is so critical for that reason, because what I've learned over the years is that you honestly could have uh, the the so-called cure to cancer uh, in your lab. But if you can't figure out a way to let the people know that you can help them, you'll die with it. And so these kinds of platforms are critical. And so I would I would thank you again for doing this and for having me. Well, thank you for joining us. David, so you know, these, these patients that are coming from all over, are they refer to you for a specific thing or do they just come with, you know, we've got pain, we need help? They they honestly they come with with we've got pain and we need help. And okay. uh and, and what we try to do from there, you mentioned the uh the techniques. Uh, issue that we had on on advanced interventional pain, we tried Which is to awesome. do, we, <laughs> we tried to thank you. We tried to divide then those presentations into those that are related to cancer, those are not related to cancer, and then uh, after that, those that are spine related and those are not spine related. So that then gives you four buckets. Uh, you can put your patient into one of those buckets, and there's a list of procedures there. And so we're okay. trying to organize all of these things that we can do. Uh, by taking that initial approach with any potential presentation. But people still get to us. Uh, I, I tell this story. I've told it at SIR. I tell it over and over. So I hope you don't mind me, me telling it here. Please. I had a patient who came to a, my clinic for some interventional radiology reason that I, I don't even remember the actual reason anymore. Uh, but they had this horrific leg pain and they had metastatic breast cancer and they weren't there for that. And they were crying and uh, couldn't get past the pain. And the family told me that they had been told that they, there was nothing that could be done about this. They were just trying to be maxed out on opioids and they couldn't spend time with their family and the opioids weren't working anyway. And we went out and we looked at this at this person's MRI and they had a lytic metastatic deposit right in the posterior elements, uh, pressing on exiting L4 nerve root that was keeping them in 10 out of 10 pain. This was something that we could solve in 45 minutes, right, Michael? We we <laughs> brought the patient into the hospital and and kept them overnight. The next morning, we did a CT-guided cryoablation of that metastatic deposit and the exiting nerve and brought that patient's pain from a 10 to a 2. The purpose wow. of this story is that this was a patient who was, an, was at an academic tertiary care center getting great care where I worked, being taken care of essentially what would be one of my partners in a, in a different specialty. And still, I had to find out about them accidentally. And so right. we've got to pay attention as we're innovating and evolving and expanding our abilities to messaging to our referrers and to the patients themselves that we're here and we can help you. Right on. Yeah, that's a great point. Very important. David, you know, and we're going to get to this in a little bit. There are so many different pain procedures of varying degrees of difficulty. And uh, I'm curious which ones, you know, for, for these treatments, which patients are you seeing in clinic beforehand? You know, for example, mm. you know, I, I don't see, you know, spinal ESI patients in clinic versus get scheduled. But, you know, some of the bigger procedures that we do, I like to see them ahead of time. I see almost all of them. So 90% of them I see in clinic and uh, 10% I don't. So let's first talk about the 10% that I don't. And that that's a 100% practice building relationship move. That 10% are those, uh, so so our audience here on the Backtable podcast will understand this. That 10% are, are the people who want to just tell you what to do. This is what I need done. Can you do this for me, right? And so uh, I don't mind absorbing that 10% to keep that relationship sure. for the more complicated cases down the road. The other 90%, I see in clinic number one, because the question usually is, can you help this patient? And, and not uh, for a specific procedure. Uh, but the, the other reason for that, for that is they're coming with the wrong diagnosis. I mean, I think the people who come to me with, uh, open quote, pudendal neuralgia, close quote, 50% of them have pudendal neuralgia, and the other 50% have some other wow. problem. And sometimes it's things that we can manage, sometimes it's not. But you have to work that out in clinic, and you have to listen to their story. And... Now, at the risk of being a little bit preachy, I would encourage everybody to take care of these patients, even if it turns out that the solution to their problem is not interventional radiology. 
Because what happens to these folks is that they are abandoned by doctors who have a list of procedures that they do or a list of options that they offer. And when that patient doesn't fit into one of those boxes, they just cut them loose. And so what what that means for a person who's not connected medically to one of us on the inside is that now they're out in the world trying to figure out how to solve this complicated pain problem and they just are lost. And so in addition to all the things that we can do technically, we should take responsibility for these patients once they cross our paths and get them to the right place because it's very difficult for them to do it themselves. So if it's not us, we can still advocate for them, we can still stay plugged into them, and we can still make sure that they get taken care of. Uh, I can give an, an example of that if I'm not going on too long. We had a patient no, who do it. Came, in, <laughs> came in over Christmas and two weeks before that had come into the ER with this intractable radiculopathy. And we were asked actually at that time during a very busy week at the end of the year to do a transraminal L5 injection for this patient. And they made it kind of into our machine and out, and we just did it, right? They fell into that 10%. We got asked to do it by a neurosurgeon who's knowledgeable. We did it. And I didn't give that patient a second thought because there were so many other things going on. Over Christmas then, patient comes back to the hospital with the same pain and the same problem. That particular day, I was in the hospital, but not on the clinical schedule. So I went to see this patient. And I listened to this story about how she was showing up in the ER and getting this sort of very disconnected discussion and treatment and getting an injection or getting uh, some Percocets and then discharged out into the world, right? And as it turned out, she had a disc herniation that was sitting on that L5 that must have been excruciatingly painful, that wasn't responding to injections. And what she really needed uh, was somebody to operate on that. But because nobody was really taking charge of her case and advocating for her, she just kept bouncing in and out uh, of the ER, even, even with this ungrounded sort of, oh, this patient's here looking for medicine or whatever. What she really needed was an advocate. She didn't need an interventional radiology procedure. She needed an advocate to get her into the right place and get the right procedure done. So I would encourage all of us to, to own that when it comes across our, our clinic schedule. Man, that's a great point. David, a lot of our, our listeners are trainees, and so I thought it would be worth uh, kind of going through the different procedures that we offer for the kind of fall under the pain management umbrella. And so what I, I tried to do is I, I made a list, and mm-hmm. it's not comprehensive, and, and I you know, should also mention that in interventional radiology, there, there's something new, it seems like, every month. And so, right. you know, right. this, this, sure. will be, this will be obsolete in a few months. Um, so I'm going to just go through the list and you tell okay. me if I miss anything glaring. And so I broke it down. I know I sent you some of these. Uh, I broke it down between the stuff that I'm doing and the stuff that I know of that I'm not doing yet. Okay. Uh, so in my practice, we're doing spinal ESI. We're doing median nerve branch block and RFA. We're doing, you know, the various types of vertebral augmentation for compression fractures. Mm-hmm. We're doing ablation and sometimes cementoplasty for painful osseous metastases. We're doing ablations for osteoid osteoma. We're doing various joint injections, injections for pudendoneuralgia, which we're just talking about, uh, mm-hmm. various other nerve blocks. Uh, you know, I'm not doing a lot of them, but, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of some examples. Like my friend Mustafa Syed, for example, he does nerve blocks on parts of the body that I, I don't even, I didn't even know where to find some of these nerves. But we, you know, we'll do celiac blocks, celiac neurolysis, and then I've recently started treating uh, patients for piriformis syndrome, and then uh, just started doing pudendal cryoneurolysis. Other procedures I can think of, some of which came from your techniques article, um, basovertebral nerve ablation, percutaneous disc interventions, percutaneous spinous process augmentation, uh, percutaneous image-guided lumbar decompression, which I hadn't heard about until the techniques issue, sphenopalatin blocks for migraines, uh, and then something I'm really excited about, embolizations for MSK conditions like Genicular artery embolization and embolization for adhesive capsulitis. Right. Anything else big that I missed? No, I think that uh, that you're right. It's it's always changing, and we are always solving problems. And your friend is approaching it exactly the right way because we can oftentimes track back where the source of this pain is, and we can target it for an injection, or we can take it a step farther and analyze the nerve that we identify as transmitting that pain and then value it, right? Can we, 
can we sacrifice this nerve completely as we can in the case of pudendal neuralgia, for example, uh, or saphenous veins that carry uh, pretibial sensation and so on. Uh, then of course we have mixed nerves like the L4 example I gave you. Can we sacrifice yeah. that nerve uh, and a little bit of strength? In that case, there was a no brainer. Of course we can do that because she couldn't walk because of pain anyway. And then uh, all the way to the other end of the spectrum where, well, actually, before we get to the other end of the spectrum, the obturator nerve is another good example of that carrying sensation from the hip. You can sacrifice that in a little bit of motor, but not com not all, not completely. And then all the way to the other end of the spectrum where we can purposely sacrifice motor by uh, freezing a nerve and uh, and then ultimately get the patient to relief. So. I know the question was, yeah. are, there, are there other procedures? But let me expound on that a little bit more so, so the no, listeners please understand. Do. What has happened during the last, I would say, five to seven years with the percutaneous cryoneurolysis procedures is the following. Early on, we thought that if we could use imaging guidance, target a nerve and freeze it, we're going to block the signal. For example, Michael, your pudendal neuralgia patients who get damaged to that nerve during a traumatic childbirth or while they're bike riding or so on. That nerve being damaged and irritated in and of itself is sending messages. And we thought early on, if you freeze this, you block the signal. That was the intuitive idea. But what we realize now mm -hmm. is that if you do it correctly and expose that nerve to the right cold temperature for the right amount of time, you induce a valerian degeneration in that nerve that is then followed by axonal regeneration along an intact uh, connective tissue scaffold at a rate of about one to two millimeters per day. Now that's super exciting uh, for a couple of reasons. The first reason is you can manage patients' expectations, right? If you do have to sacrifice motor, you can tell them that this is going to recover over X number of days, you know, given that calculation. Uh, also, if you accidentally freeze a nerve, by the way. You, and you studied that, you've published on this. We did, we did. And so, and, and the reason, to, you know, it's just a little tangential uh, comment. The reason we did that was because people were accidentally freezing these nerves, right? This wasn't even a deliberate thing. Yeah. I would get calls, oh my gosh, I was doing a tumor in the acetabulum, clipped the femoral <laughs> nerve, uh, what do I do now, right? And so what we realized over the years between basic science research done by us and done by this, uh, this guy called Dr. Elfield, to, I kind of stole Tucker Carlson's uh, phrase there, Dr. Elfield, <laughs> who's in California, and, and our clinical cases realized that with almost 100% certainty, this nerve is going to regenerate. So we were able to answer people's questions. And I love to get those calls because people would call me in an absolute panic about uh, some oh, yeah. paralysis that their patient was having post-tumor ablation. So I was able to tell them, don't worry about it. Here's how long it's going to take to recover. You can accelerate that with PT. But what I wanted to talk about now was that that application does save you in that situation, but it can be even more exciting if we think about the conditions like pudendal neuralgia or otherwise, when the nerve itself is damaged. If the nerve is damaged and you induce that degeneration and regeneration, what you've essentially offered this patient is a percutaneous neuroregenerative therapy and they're cured, right? So you didn't just temporarily block the signal like we thought 10 years ago. You're inducing an axonal regeneration and a nerve uh, regeneration so that the patient has a pudendal nerve that wasn't present during that traumatic childbirth, and so they don't have that pain anymore. And you can go beyond there. I, I give an example of a patient who came to us, had a motorcycle accident like 10 years ago and had this irritated perineal neuropathy, uh, still had motor, but had pain in that distribution. So we blocked it, got better, came back. We did a radiofrequency ablation, it got better, came back. And so essentially we said, look, why don't we freeze this nerve, the whole thing will degenerate. You're going to have foot drop for six or eight months. And when a nerve regenerates, uh, we think your pain will be gone. And that's exactly what happened. And so uh, that application for percutaneous cryoneurolysis is super exciting. Uh, and we may be able yeah. to help a lot of people with that. That's awesome. I, I think I want to start calling it that is percutaneous neuroregeneration. That's so right. great. But hey, I, I do want to tell our, our listeners, because I want, I want to keep talking more about Cryoneurolysis, but I do want to tell our listeners to check out from that TVIR interventional pain issue the article that Dr. Prologo uh, published on that. It was called Interventional Cryoneurolysis: An Illustrative Approach, and it really breaks it down and goes through a lot of this in detail. But uh, you know, it takes a, a good global look at this procedure. So, David, can you walk me through patient and lesion selection for cryoneurolysis? How do you determine if a specific nerve or pattern of symptoms is is likely to respond to this? 
Okay, so great question. So I, uh, we'll go back to our uh, our global approach uh, from a couple of minutes ago, which is first step being, is this a cancer patient or not, right? And then is this a spine lesion or not? And most of the time, you're going to say uh, the second part, is this a spine lesion or not? Usually the answer to that is going to be no. And that's going to leave you with two buckets, which are cancer-related lesions outside of the spine and then non-neoplastic conditions outside of the spine. And so once we have the source of the patient's pain, you may have to go back to the internet or back to your medical school books to decide where exactly the nerve is and what is the composition of that nerve that is carrying the pain signal from the generator. For example, we have a patient who comes to us uh, with bilateral pretibial metastatic deposits from melanoma and intractable pain had been all the way around the horn from interventional pain to PM&R and all those other subspecialties that you mentioned, uh, still with intractable pain. So we track that back. What nerve is carrying uh, sensation from that pretibial region? The saphenous nerve. Is it carrying significant motor? It's not. Can we find it and put a needle there and freeze it? We can. And so right away, that's how you manage this cancer patient. Oftentimes in the cancer setting, though, uh, if we go back to the L4 example, the tumor itself will be in contact with the nerve. And so then you ask yourself, can I get to the tumor and the nerve? Can I get it all with a, with a cryoablation procedure? And if you can, then you do as long as you're willing to, to sacrifice motor. So it's really, uh, I like this audience because we don't have to really maintain the mysterious smoke and mirrors type uh, PR. Because for this audience, <laughs> right. I can just say, look, it's a matter of figuring out where the generator is, what's transmitting that pain, and can you get there and freeze it? Uh, and that's how it works in the cancer arena. In the non-neoplastic arena, it gets a little bit complicated, but not too much more. If you consider for illustration, patients who have inguinodynia post-hernia repair, they get the general femoral nerve and ilioinguinal nerve and trapped in that mesh, and they've got constant irritation mm -hmm. of those nerves. And so we ask ourselves, what's, what's, the, what's the generator? And we know it's that post-operative bed or it's that post-operative uh, mesh hardware that's left in there. Can we get to those nerves? Yes. Do they carry significant motor? No. Uh, and so we can freeze them and get the patient some relief. Now, in the non-neoplastic arena, when it's usually less urgent, uh, we really had to get to the L4 lady tonight, right? But in the non-neoplastic arena, we have the time to do the diagnostic injection to make sure what we're going to do is going to help the patient. So you okay. can bring that inguinodynia patient in to ultrasound or CT. You can infiltrate bupivacaine and steroid into that region and give them sort of a dress rehearsal what it's going to be like post-cryo. You have that luxury. And most of the time, we do do that in the non-neoplastic arena. But the reasoning is the same. If you can get there uh, and you can sacrifice it and, and it's going to help the patient, then, then that's what you do. And these things, these inguinodynia uh, example and pudendal neuralgia example, there are many, many more. But these examples are really populations of patients who don't have another option. And without us, are cut off to sort of figure this out on their own or manage it with opioids for the rest of their lives. So these are, this is not an insignificant number of people that we can help with these procedures. No, not at all. And I think it's really useful breaking it down between neoplastic and, and non-neoplastic conditions. You know, I was going to ask, you know, what other regions you do this for, but I think the answer is, is probably very different between those two patient groups. And I would expect you could be a bit more aggressive with the neoplastic ones because in those patients, I mean, we've all dealt with some of those where, you know, if you ask them, like, hey, look, there's a real risk that you're going to have some motor deficits after that. Most of them would just say, fine, just get rid of this right. pain. Or they already have a motor deficit, right? Because if the right, nerve that yeah. we're talking about, uh, again, true. why I love this audience, because uh, we can just say it the way it is, right? Most of the time, if it's a, if it's a mixed composition nerve and they're coming to you, uh, with intractable pain that's involving that nerve, it's almost certainly already affecting the motor component, right? Yeah. Or, it, or it is what you said. It's so painful that they're happy to sacrifice the motor component. And if, if they're going to live long enough to see that nerve regenerate, you can tell them, look, with physical therapy, this nerve is going to regenerate, right? But a lot of the times that's not the case. They might not uh, live long enough to see that regeneration. But right. they really do care. Sorry, sorry, Michael. They really do care no. about what you're trying to do here because it's not only, uh, here I go on the risk of being preachy again, it's not only the patient's pain 
but they want to spend that time they have left interacting with their family, not not gorked yeah. on pain meds, right? Yeah, I told a I told a patient recently with an advanced endometrial cancer. I was like, hey, look, this this might make you numb. And she said, that sounds awesome. Like, right. You know, to her, that sounded like a dream. Like, I don't care. Um, right. Exactly. So. We have a patient just last week with this slow-growing liposarcoma that is finally starting to uh, invade the S1 nerve roots. And the question for us was, and this is why you have to see these. I know everybody on the podcast probably says this. This is why you have to see these patients and you have to work them up and you have to make sure you're doing the right thing. And, and if you can spend time with them, this thing has been growing for years. I mean, like eight years growing in the pelvis. Uh, but now it's now it's growing into this S1 nerve root. So the question for us was, hey, can you ablate this mass? And it was going to be a big job to ablate the mass. And there's all kind of bowel loops all over the place. And and the question really became, well, why is it bothering them now after all these years? And if you go through the scans, you see it's really the, the S1 that's now being affected. And, and that's where the patient was pointing. Yeah. And so in that case, even though I just said with the neoplastic patients, we don't do this. In that case, we blocked that S1 first. And, and we talked to the yeah. patient. We said, look, if we block this S1 and you get better, then I think we ablate this S1 and let the mass go. Because it's been growing slowly for the last five to seven years or whatever, not bothering you. Uh, and so we can take out that S1. You're going to get a little bit of weakness on that side. But he said the same thing. To your point, great. That sounds super, right? Yeah, fine. The reason that I came on, uh, in, you know, because I enjoy your company, number one. But also, uh, I, I came on because that patient, they found us, but almost serendipitously once again, right? So we've, we've got to find a way, and maybe this is my job as the clinical specialty council chair, to get this message out to the general public and activate our army all the way across the, yeah. the country and the world to help these patients. Yeah. I gave a lecture, uh, I gave grand rounds at a new hospital. We started covering a, a woman's hospital and just kind of what we do. And it, it amazed me at, at how little the, the audience knew about what we do. And, and, and actually the console started like pouring in after that because they, they didn't, you know, a lot of people don't know that we offer really anything for pain. So, you know, it's important for the patients to know, but the doctors too. Yeah. Right. Right. They, and, and even now they don't, they don't comprehend. I'm, I'm always sort of, uh, for, for example, go back to this S1 patient. I, I'm always amazed at how that disconnect exists. I, and I guess it's because everyone's so busy and we're so busy and, you know, we don't have time to talk to every person in the universe and we don't go straight to the public and so on. There's a lot of reasons for it. But, you know, this S1 thing that we just went through, liposarcoma, complicated approach. We thought it through. We looked at the images. We blocked S1. We're probably bringing this patient back for a cry. And I'm, I always love to go read the notes shortly after that. And it'll say something like, IR does block did block patient doing well, <laughs> you know, and sort of grossly yeah. oversimplify all the work that, uh, and the technology that goes into the case. But you're, you're the person to help us get the word out. You're doing the job right now that can help us solve that problem. So thank you. We're certainly trying, but, you know, I think one of the other challenges is that unlike something like, you know, let's say like a, uh, ear, nose and throat physician, you know, and they have a very circumscribed area that they're treating. We are treating the entire body and with extraordinary array of different things that we offer. And it's very easy for things to get lost in that. You know, people are used to sending us X, Y, Z. They forget that we also do A, B, C. You know, there are just so many things out there that we do. And not everyone does the, you know, the, the whole array of those procedures. And, and I think all of that kind of feeds into the lack of understanding about you know, what we may be able to offer. And it, the demand is there. It's an existing Absolutely, demand. I have a, uh, a startup company that's developing a, a cryonorolysis probe. And uh, we, we talk to investors and we sort of go through that whole process. And what we find again and again and again is the investors will come back to us with, you know, this is a device that you've developed to, to solve an existing or to meet an existing demand, which is unusual. They, they're used to seeing people invent devices and then try to find some role for them, some application for them. But the demand for interventional radiology and the management of pain, coronarolysis or not, it's it's already you know it's it's already in place. People are already calling and saying you know how do I do this? Or you're seeing it right? You're seeing the, the demand. The patients are there. I guess is what I'm trying to say. The the problem is there. Uh, if we can figure out a way to get to them, sure. So I know it's going to vary a lot based on what part of the body you're treating, what the indication is, and everything. But I'm I'm curious, you know, how you set expectations with the patient. You know, what do you tell them in terms of you know, duration of pain relief and degree of pain relief? 
normally what I will tell them, and, th- and this is what I found to be the case, patients who have had pain are going to fall into, I think, one of three outcomes. And the first one is you're going to have, it's going to be a home run and you're going to feel better tomorrow and you're going to be on your way. These are your patients who come in with uh, acute fractures related to neoplasm, right? You bring them in, radiofrequency mm-hmm. ablations, mental plasty. The next day they're singing your praises and they go home, right? There's, there's home runs like that. Then there's this middle bucket. And I think this is the soft tissue and osseous metastatic disease patients where you might do an ablation and they're going to have procedure-related pain and also what I call kind of this hornet's nest effect where they've got something that's painful and you put a bunch of needles into it and exacerbated it somehow. And so they're going to have 48 hours of maybe even worsened pain, right? Uh, And then after that, they're going to do better because you've addressed their pain generator and you kind of went to war with it, 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 but it was ugly, right? Uh, But you won and then they're going to do better in the long run. And then you've got this third group of patients who are going to have delay. These are responders, by the way. And this third group of patients are going to have a delayed response. And you see that a lot of times with the cryoneurolysis cases, because the first 28 days following the cryoneurolysis, you've got this acute infiltration of inflammatory cells and the induction of that valerian degeneration. But until that time, the patient can have exacerbation of their pain. They can have new pain. Uh-huh. Uh, but even then, the Wallerian degeneration and regeneration wins out. And so they end up doing better, but it's at the three-month mark or the six-month mark. And, and then, of course, so, so that's how I divide up. If you respond, this is, this is what I think is going to happen, one of these three things for you. And then, of course, there are non-responders, but that really comes down to patient selection, I think. Uh, we can minimize our non-responders by doing logical things, doing test blocks, understanding our technology and the, yeah. and the process that goes along with the pain, understanding central sensitization. Uh, I think our non-responders can be minimized. Totally. I want to ask you just a little bit about a specific indication, you know, well, not even a specific indication, a specific area, pudinal nerve cryoneurolysis, which I mentioned to you before, I learned from a couple excellent studies that you published on this procedure that for any listeners out there, I'm happy to share, you know, we're trying to put together you know, some of our references that we used when we released these podcasts, and that'll be included in there. So I just wanted to ask you, um, you know, just using this as an example, how do you work a patient up for this procedure to determine if they're a candidate? Sure. And that's a, that's a good question, because as I mentioned, a lot of these patients who think they have pudendal neuralgia don't. And so totally. the first thing you want to do is talk to them about the distribution of their pain. And there are diagnostic criteria for pudendal neuralgia, right? The nonce criteria. And we can apply them uh, and, and we can ask them that, do they have, you know, the right distribution of pain? Did they have an antecedent event? Uh, but at the end of the day, it comes down to the block. And again, to sing the praises of, yes. uh, interventional radiology and be thankful for our position in life, we have CT guidance, right? So we do an injection in Alcox canal and you slide a 22 gauge needle underneath that obturator internus fascia and blow it up like a balloon, get an image of it blown up by your bupivacaine, because at that point, you have shut down the pudendal nerve. And if the patient doesn't get better, they don't have pudendal neuralgia. This is a critical crossroads for a lot of patients. I've had patients come to me for 10 years. This is what they'll tell me. For 10 years, I've had pudendal neuralgia. Can you help me? And they're just convinced. I mean, I don't know how it happened. Somebody told them and then there's, you know, blah, blah, blah. They researched it and they're seeking help for pudendal neuralgia. And so I explained to them that, look, maybe you don't have pudendal neuralgia. Let's sort that out first. Because if you don't, you can drop this whole pursuit and we can start to think about what exactly you do have and why you have pain. We can paint the cause into a corner and we can get you a solution. So what I tell the patients is, I'm going to get you somewhere. Now that you've come to me, we're going to do something different. The very first step we take is going to be a critical crossroads for you because if you don't respond to this injection then we're going down a different path and you're never going to talk about pudendal neuralgia again. And they're, they don't, I mean, this is very unsettling for them, right? And if you do respond to this injection, I'm going to cure you of it, right? And, and, and you can get them really to take this big step. So the injection is absolutely critical and key. And you can say, I know you've had injections in the past, but 
unless they were done under CT guidance, you have to consider the possibility that that injectate didn't go where they wanted it to go. If you had an injection done with landmark guidance, transvaginal guidance, or even fluoroscopic guidance, and you had some equivocal response, you have to consider the fact that they might have missed. With CT, I'm going to have an image that tells me with 100% certainty that I didn't miss. So if you don't respond, then you don't have pudendal neuralgia, and we're going to help you. I use that same approach with, with ESIs, for example. If I do an ESI, which uses fluoro guidance, if I do an ESI twice and it doesn't work, then we're done. And, you know, it's like we have to find something else. We're barking up the wrong tree. Right, right. We have to, we have to move on and try to, uh, you know, we work, I work at an academic center where I can say the following as well. This is another speech that I give the patients. I'm not getting paid by procedure, right? I'm, I'm a salaried guy. Right. So I'm not, I don't have any motivation to hook you in and do procedures for the rest of my life. What I want to do is right. find the one that's going to help you. So to your point, if you're not responding to that, maybe it's something else. Maybe it's axial pain from facet hypertrophy, right? Uh, it could, it yeah. could be degenerative disc disease, et cetera. Maybe you need surgery. Whatever, it becomes a game for us to solve this problem and get the patient taken care of. Um, but back to the pudendal patients. So patients who don't respond, the next step for me is MRN. So we do magnetic resonance neurography in part because we're looking for a target, right? If we see something abnormal on there, that means we can most certainly target it with some image guidance and maybe take care of the patient there. The other reason is we get a look at everything else, right? And maybe there's pelvic venous congestion syndrome. Many, many times we pick that up, right? And we go back and talk to the patient again. Is this, is this worse for you in the evening after you're standing up all day? Yes, yes, yes. You know, and so we, we, make some, we make some diagnostic maneuvers that way by going to MRN. If the MRN comes up negative, then we have to start to uh, consider the patient's symptoms in the, the setting that we talked about, the saphenous nerve, for example. You know, where mm -hmm. is this pain that didn't respond to a pudendal nerve? How is that possible? There's nothing else on the MRN. What other nerve can be supplying this? If the answer is none, then you've now sort of stumbled onto another big principle for us as interventional radiologists, especially if we're going to target nerves. And that is that if you can't find the sniper one-to-one -one solution, start to back off and start to look at autonomic uh, targets. You know this from doing celiac plexus in the abdomen, right? People who have isolated rectal pain, for example, you are not likely to find a sniper one-to-one -one solution to that because there's such a redundant supply to the rectum. So you back up and you start to think about inferior hypogastric plexus, superior hypogastric plexus as targets yeah. for patients that have persistent pain that you haven't found a one-to-one -on -one response to. And so that's the next step after negative MRN, no clear one-to-one -one response, start going after the autonomic targets like the superior hypogastric plexus and, and, and inferior hypogastric plexus and so on, uh, or look for vascular causes and so on. On the pudendal side, uh, when I, what I call a response and what I tell uh, our trainees and anyone who asks me, if you can do the CT-guided injection without sedation, which most of the time you can, then when you talk to the patient afterwards or specifically the next day, their response should not be ambiguous. A positive response is not subtle. A positive response is, oh my God, I've had pain there for 10 years and yesterday I went out to dinner because my pain was gone. And then at 10 o'clock it came raging back, right? Because your bupivacaine wore off. That's a positive response. If they give you a right. non-ambiguous, non-subtle description to the uh, injection like that, that's the patient who's going to do great from a, from a cryo. David, but obviously, you know, the, the immediate response for cryoneurolysis is different. And, and when I first, you know, when I read your articles to learn how to do this procedure, you had mentioned that for, at least for pudendals, you're, you were keeping the patients in-house for, for the night, for the first night. Are you still doing that? No, no. And the other thing that's different from those early articles nice, good. Uh, is, our, is our target. And that's, that's super important. And, we, and it just got so busy, actually, that now we haven't written, I've done hundreds and hundreds of these now uh, and haven't written them up. And we really need to do right. that. And, and I apologize to the audience for that. But what we need to know right now before that's done is that the target, early on, we were trying to go really far distal and we described yeah. this distal target. And the reason for that was there's an inferior rectal branch from the pudendal nerve. We didn't want to cause incontinence, right? But as I mentioned a few, few minutes ago, there's such redundant supply to the rectum and anus that you can smoke both of those inferior rectal nerves and you're not going to cause incontinence. 
Uh, and you certainly are not going to cause urinary incontinence. And so we've moved proximally. And the proximal portion of the pudendal nerve in the pudendal canal, you can follow the pudendal artery and you can see exactly where it enters into that canal. We go in there and uh, target it. It, it. So essentially that's the middle of the pudendal nerve. And you'll see this antegrade degeneration like we talked about earlier, but there's also retrograde degeneration to the closest cell body. Uh, and that's actually mm -hmm. where the regeneration will start again. So the target now is put the probe in the ischiorectal fat. Don't stab okay. the nerve because we don't want to cause any mechanical damage. No. And put it adjacent to the obturator internus muscle where the pudendal nerve and artery come into that canal together. Uh, so that's our target. And our time right now is an eight-minute 100% uh, freeze followed by a three-minute passive thaw, which is going to- passive. Sort of, I was going to segue into another thing, so we'll come back to that. Yeah. Followed by a three-minute, 100% active thaw, and then a passive thaw. So that's going to segue into, into two things. The first one is, it's a passive thaw because the mechanism of action here is not an osmotic gradient shift induction. That's what we do to kill cancer. What we're doing here is trying to induce that specific nerve injury that we talked about earlier. It's called a Sunderland II injury, so that we can induce neuroregeneration, we can manage the patient's expectations. That time course and passive thaw is the best we can come up with so far with current available technology to induce that Sunderland II. That's based on the nerve composition and nerve size. Uh, and so those times get longer for bigger nerves and they get shorter for smaller yeah. nerves just a little bit. So that's the first thing I wanted to say. The mechanism of injury is different, so no need for an active thaw. And then yeah, I, that's that's what our startup is developing. Uh, the startup is called Focus Cryo. Okay. We're developing the device that will take these calculations out of the operator's hand because what we need to know is what is the actual in vivo temperature during this ablation and how long is that temperature present? Uh, how long is that nerve exposed to that temperature? And then we need that to feedback so that you can just put the put the probe in there and the machine will tell you when it's done yeah. instead of us doing this totally. guesswork. But until we have that in your hands, Michael, 8333 for the pudendal nerve. 8333. I've got two of these next week. So okay. uh, I'm, I'm going to write that down. My last question about this is, and for all cryoneurolysis procedures, um, when do you evaluate the patient in clinic and follow-up? Like how, how, you know, when do you bring them back and, and how frequently? We talk to them the next day and then we bring them back in about a month. And the reason for that is we don't want to get too far into the weeds, you know, this third day, fourth day, fifth day, and try to interpret what response that might be because it could be in any one of those three buckets, right? But at the one-month mark uh, is when we usually see them back in clinic. And over the years, what happened was these patients just weren't coming back because the, the question was, when you do a cry, are you going to have to repeat this, et cetera, et cetera? And, and until we figured out this neuroregeneration mechanism, the answer was, I don't know. And so we'd follow them for a while. But what we realized over the years was these patients aren't coming back because they're better. So we see them at one month uh, and then we cut them loose. And, and that's what I tell them in the original clinic visit, that that's my hope. That's what I want to do for you. I want to put an end to this pain and saga for you. All right. Well, look, I, I think that gives us a fantastic overview of advanced pain interventions for the interventional radiologist. Before we sign off, just a couple more things. Uh, I'm curious if you have any advice that you could share for any listeners out there who are interested in growing this element of their practice or, or even starting it from scratch. Sure, absolutely. We, I have a, a whole talk, actually, that I give on exactly, exactly this topic. So I'll try, to, I'll try to hit the high points. First and foremost, be there for the inpatients. We talked a little bit about that earlier. Uh, you're already there. The inpatients need you. And this is the first place where you can show the refers what you can do and the administration. That's number one. Yeah. Uh, number two is uh, the 20983, which is the code that we use for soft tissue and osseous uh, ablations. You're already there in the tumor boards and you already have a relationship or you will have an obligatory relationship with the oncologist. And so you just have to let them know, we're here for your intractable pain patients. Uh, which brings me to number three, the way you present that to oncology and non-oncology is don't try to figure out what we can do. If you've got a patient who's got pain, send them to us and we'll take care of it, right? Because like we said before, if it is us, great. If it's not us, then we're going to get them to the right place. And then you're taking these 
especially, you know, in the, this term, I try to avoid this term. I've done pretty well so far, but in the so-called real world where people are working, right? These referrers are busy. And so if they've got a patient that's got a problem and you can, and you say to them, look, I'll take care of this for you. And they love it. Great. Boom. They're on to the next patient. And that way you don't have to, you don't have to try to educate them about every little thing that we can do. And then go to the, to the APPs and the nurse navigators, uh, seek them out, find them, let them know the same exact thing. Look, we're here. Keep us in mind. If Mrs. Smith is on the floor with intractable femoral neuropathy, we may be able to help keep us, keep us in mind. And then what I think is the holy grail for our specialty slash subspecialty, go to the public, find your media liaison and tell them that you want to go to the public. You want to go on the news. You want to go on the back table podcast. You want to go wherever it may be to tell your story to the public because when the public hears about it, they start asking the referrers and then the referrer is looking for you, right? So those are, those are the places where I, where I would start. If I, if I had to start over again tomorrow. Oh, another thing that I'd say in that talk is that if you have a good outcome, try to capitalize on it because that's what everyone else does everywhere else in the world for everything else, right? <laughs> if you have something and it's great and you, you own a vacation resort and uh, some influencer stays there and has a great time. You try to capitalize on that, right? You try to, and, and the reason is you have something great and you want more people to know about it. So if you take care of somebody who may be an influencer or maybe a so-called VIP, or even if you just have a great outcome, try to capitalize on that and let people know that you can do these things. That's fantastic advice. And again, thank you so much for joining us on here. Just want to remind our listeners, check out that TVI article. Um, that issue, uh, actually, um, another thing that you brought up, there's a great article in there about coding for uh, pain interventions, which obviously is important for somebody starting this off. Uh, guys, be on the lookout for the book, The Catching Point Transformation. And I look forward to seeing that seminars issue as well between seminars and TVIR. You, know, you, you got the, the high points hit. Thanks again for everybody for listening and we'll catch you on the next one. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable MSK on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Jacob Fleming, and co-hosts Michael Barraza and Chris Beck. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross. And Ness Smith Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Social media and show notes written by Marvi Espiritu. And Anne Dang. Administrative support provided by Jim Roy Thanks again, and see you next time.